Well, we want to open our Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5 for our time in the Word of God. Matthew chapter 5 is, of course, the opening verses of Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount, which, as I said two weeks ago, is not only Jesus' famous sermon, most famous sermon, it's probably the most famous sermon of all time. It's the most well-known sermon in the world, and I think you might say the most important sermon in all the world. And Matthew's very clear as we read the opening verses of Matthew 5. He's very clear about what prompted this sermon. The very first verses, it tells us that Jesus was seeing the crowds. He was watching this massive response to his ministry, primarily, primarily his healing ministry, which Matthew had talked about at the end of chapter 4, people flocking to him literally from all over the ancient Near East, coming to be benefited by his healing powers. And yet Jesus wasn't fooled by any of this into thinking that spiritual things were necessarily taking place in the hearts of all these people simply because they were coming. So Matthew tells us that he calls his disciples away from the crowds to himself in order to give them this sermon. It was a sermon that was originally targeted to them uh, probably over the course of an entire day, maybe the course of a couple of days, because at the very end, it's no longer just the disciples there there, but Matthew tells us at the end of chapter 7 that then crowds eventually gathered to begin listening in to this sermon along the way. And they responded to it at the end. So it begins with this small inner circle, and then as it goes along, more and more people gather. But the purpose was clearly targeted to the disciples. And it was clearly to help them understand one central point. Who is and who is not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven? This is what Jesus is concerned about when he opens up in chapter 5, verse 3, talking about it is the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom. It's the same thing he's concerned about when you get to the very end, and Jesus warns of those who will come to him on the last day, saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do many wonderful things in your name? And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And everything in between is focused on the same thing, defining who is and who is not going to enter the kingdom of heaven, who is and who is not a follower, a disciple, a genuine believer. It's not enough just to gather in a crowd around Jesus. It's not enough just to gather in a place like this to come together on a Sunday. It's not enough for any of that. Jesus wants You and I and his disciples and everyone, he wants us to understand who it is who's going to enter the kingdom. Our focus in the next few weeks are going to be on these opening verses and these powerful, memorable, profound statements that we know as the Beatitudes, these series of statements that declare particularly those people who are blessed and sometimes I'm thinking that's not the best word because sometimes whenever we use the word blessed or blessed we perhaps get the idea of some sort of religious uh, 
rite or pronouncement, some sort of angelic or celestial feeling that comes over you at a religious moment. But that's not exactly what this is about. This is much more practical and basic than any of this. It's basically a word that Jesus is using to acknowledge the advantageous position that people find themselves in. To acknowledge the desirable position that they're in. That they are experiencing life the way everyone would want to experience it. That they are receiving or achieving or finding what everyone is after. They're finding comfort. They're finding satisfaction. They're finding inheritance. They're finding mercy. They're ultimately finding God's favor. All of those are the blessings that Jesus is talking about in these opening verses. As I mentioned, we're going to take our time to go through this because of how essential they are. They were for the disciples and they are for us. And today we want to focus really on the first of these Beatitudes, the entry point, if you will, to understanding who is and is not going to enter the kingdom. That's Jesus' declaration in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We want to basically look at this and understand it, I think, in two steps. The first, we might call the exposition. The second, the example. Uh, The exposition or spiritual poverty expounded. Uh, Just to understand it, unpack it for for, for what it is. Jesus is declaring the poor in spirit as the truly blessed. They are the ones who have what everyone else is after. They possess the kingdom of heaven. But who are these poor in spirit? Well, I think to begin with, you have to note that there are two words within the Greek language to talk about poverty. There is the sort of common word for poor, the Pentecost. These are the people who don't have much. They generally were not owners of property. They were uh, sort of subsistence uh, uh, workers and often lived hand to mouth, just going, we might say, paycheck to paycheck, going out and working and at the end of the day, uh, taking their proceeds home and buying food for their family just to get them through another day. They had very little. They were always sort of oppressed, the lower classes. This is is the Pentecost, the poor in the world. But there's another word, the word tokos. Literally, it's a word that is derived from bowing or cowering. Because it always pictured the person who was so destitute, in many cases so disabled and, and handicapped, we might say, that they didn't even have the ability to work for themselves. They didn't have the ability to do anything to help themselves. And so they were reduced to nothing else but just bowing on the street, cowering and lowering their head as they lifted up their hand or their cup in hopes that someone would show them the mercy of putting something in it. They were absolutely dependent on others because they had zero means. They had no capability of doing anything to provide for themselves. You couldn't tell them to work harder because they couldn't work. They were unable. These are the tokos 
And it's the word that Jesus uses here. Not talking about material poverty, although some have chosen to emphasize that through the years and tried to exalt material poverty as some sort of virtue, in some cases even taking vows of poverty and running off to monasteries and trying to lock themselves away from the world as if there's some sort of virtue in that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He is not talking about material poverty. He's talking about spiritual poverty. The spiritually poor. Not necessarily those with materially nothing, but those with absolutely nothing spiritually. Now, this is not anything unique to Jesus. It's actually something that you see reflected throughout the Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament and the wisdom literature, where you see this word poor used again and again. The word is ebion in the Hebrew. It's used again and again to contrast not the poor versus the rich, but the poor versus the proud. That's how we know that it's not talking about material poverty. It's talking about a sort of position spiritually or mentally. In fact, many of the uses of this come from David during his reign as king, when he was by no means materially poor. He had plenty of resources to get whatever he wanted, and yet he would call himself or reflect on himself as needy or poor. For example, Psalm 40, since I am afflicted and needy, or ebion, the word is poor. Since I'm afflicted and needy, he says, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. Psalm 86, a prayer of David, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and poor. Psalm 109, I am afflicted and poor, my heart is wounded within me. These were not pleas of an economically poor person, but these were pleas of a needy person, spiritually needy. When you come to the Proverbs, you see the same sort of thing. Poor, repeatedly used in contrast to the rich. Proverbs 3.34, though God scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the poor. So there the contrast is not between the materially rich, but it's between the scoffers and the poor. Proverbs 16.19, it's better to be humble in the spirit, excuse me, humble in spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Well, this is the same way that Jesus is using this word. He's using it to talk about those who are not materially destitute, but to talk about those who are spiritually destitute. They are spiritually bankrupt. We might say they're spiritually ruined. They have nothing to offer. They have no virtue. They have no merit. They have no goodness, no inherent character qualities that make them commendable or worthy. There is no knowledge or wisdom or counsel that they can provide or offer. Nothing. They have absolutely nothing to make themselves acceptable, presentable to God or to anyone else, really, for that matter. Nothing that gives them advantage. Nothing that gives them a foothold. Nothing that gives them sort of the upper hand over anyone else. This is not people who have little to offer. 
These people have nothing to offer. Completely, utterly impoverished spiritually. You have nothing of yourself to commend yourself to God, nothing of yourself to commend yourself to others, nothing to sustain yourself. Jesus isn't talking about the person who has enough humility to recognize their imperfections. They can recognize where they're not sort of hitting it on all cylinders, but at the same time, they take comfort in the fact that they're not as bad as others. They're better off than others. They compare themselves to others and take comfort that uh, they haven't at least reached the point of spiritual poverty as they see around them. That's not who Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the utterly destitute person. The person who is completely without any resource. Completely without anything that gives them any advantage. Another way to say this is this is the person who has no self-assurance, no self-reliance, no self-confidence. They're conscious of the fact that they have nothing that could commend them, nothing for which they could boast, nothing that would give them any advantage. It's not to say that they have no confidence or no assurance. It would be wrong to think that the poor in spirit are just simply people who are naturally sort of faltering and withdrawing and hesitant people. He's not talking about people without confidence. He's talking about people without self-confidence, self-assurance, self-reliance. They're like Paul in Philippians 3 when he says, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of gaining Christ. Paul says, yeah, if you want to talk about that stuff in a worldly sense, I had all that. I had all the sort of accolades and I had all the education and I had all the religious achievement and I had all the personal traits and qualities that other people might have admired. I had all of that. But I counted it like rubbish, he says. I counted it as nothing, as just something to be thrown out on the trash heap. Until he concludes in the next chapter, I can do all things, but only through him who strengthens me. This is spiritual poverty. It lays aside any sort of grasp of glory, all acclaim. It divests itself of any demands for dignity or honor or greatness because it understands it has no claim to that. In some ways, it is like Jesus, who indeed had a claim to all honor and all glory and all dignity, all knowledge. He had all of that. And yet, Paul tells us he set it aside and took the form of a servant. He was in the form of God, and yet he didn't cling to that, but instead he emptied himself. 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then as he appeared in human form, he declares again and again, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. Or later on, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he emptied himself to the point where he made no more claim on personal authority, no more claim on personal rights, no more claim on personal judgment, no more claim on any of his own resources. He was completely emptied of himself. Although he had all the right to the dignity and the honor, he emptied himself of all position and claim to it, and for our sakes he became poor so that we could become rich. Well, this is what Jesus is calling us to. To find true blessedness is to empty yourself of yourself. Because the reality is you have no claim to any of that stuff anyway. You have no dignity inherently or honor that gives you any standing, certainly before God or before anyone else. You have no spiritual resources that make you anything of any value. You have nothing to hold on to. Another way to say this is you can't enter the kingdom, Jesus is telling us, unless you enter the kingdom completely empty-handed. Completely empty-handed. Empty of yourself. Empty of any claim or contribution to your salvation. Any personal blessing, any personal uh, sort of qualities that would make you worth anything. You are destitute, absolutely unable to do anything. As the old saying goes, the only thing you can contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. So Jesus is telling you this. That for you to inherit God's kingdom is for you to give up your own. This is the reason why the impoverished person is blessed. Because they've reached this point where they see their absolute spiritual devastation. But it's at that point, Jesus says, that they inherit untold spiritual riches. They inherit the kingdom of heaven. But there's no one who enters in that doesn't reach that point. And without that spiritual sense of poverty, you'll always be outside the kingdom. Now, if that is sort of the explanation, if that's the exposition of what Jesus is talking about, I think it would help us to understand this if we just look at an example of it. And we could do that a number of places. We could see this spiritual poverty exemplified in Job, for example, in the Old Testament. We could see it in Uh, men like uh, David or Isaiah. There's a number of places that we could turn to that would show us pictures of this sort of spiritual poverty. In the New Testament, we could look at a number of different disciples and apostles. But I, 
I want us to focus this morning on the testimony of the Apostle Paul and specifically his testimony in the book of 2 Corinthians because it's one of the places where I believe you hear this spiritual poverty coming through again and again and you can see exactly what it looks like or hear exactly what it sounds like in real life. 2 Corinthians which is a book where Paul is forced to explain and defend his sufficiency and competency as a minister to the Corinthians over and over again. This competency and sufficiency had come under attack by his critics and his enemies who were infiltrating the church, people who had taken their aim at discrediting the Apostle Paul so that they could ultimately undermine his ministry, usurp his place, and present themselves as the ultimate leaders of the church. And one of the things that they focused on was what they considered to be Paul's inadequacies, his incompetencies, his his lack of capability as a leader, as someone who could answer the complex issues of life, Someone who was incapable of giving the kind of direction that they needed. Someone who was unfit and someone who was insufficient for them to place their lives under for direction. When you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is addressing this issue head on. In fact, he's kind of answering a question he had raised at the end of chapter 2 in verse 16 when he asked, somewhat rhetorically, who is sufficient for these things? He doesn't immediately answer the question until you get to chapter 3, verse 4, where he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. So Paul's explaining to them why he doesn't shrink back from proclaiming this message. And it wasn't out of a sense of self-sufficiency and it wasn't out of a sense of self-confidence. If it's a question of sufficiency and confidence, Paul's initial answer would be, I am insufficient. In and of myself, I'm incompetent. I'm incapable I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to commend myself to you. I have nothing that would give me standing before you. I am, in a personal sense, bankrupt and impoverished. I have nothing to offer you in and of myself. But, of course, that's not the end of the story because, as he goes on to say in verse 5, our sufficiency is from God, who's made us sufficient as ministers or to be ministers. So Paul's answer is, the only person who is sufficient is the person who's made sufficient by God. The only one who has resources is the one who has found those resources in God. The one who has standing, the only one who has answers, the only one who has anything to offer is the one who has found something to offer in God. And so Paul is telling them, I am not inadequate in myself. If left to myself, I can accomplish absolutely nothing. 
In fact, when you get to chapter 12, Paul will just tell them, on behalf of myself, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Because as he says in that chapter, verse 9, God had made it clear to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. It's made perfect in poverty. It's made perfect in insufficiency and inadequacy among men and women. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, he says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I come to an end of my own resources, when I come to an end of my own strength, when I come to the end of my own whatever it might be, when I come to the end of everything that I have to offer or commend myself, when I am completely depleted, then I'm strong. It's at that point that the power of God flows. So Paul was a man who had a tremendous sense of competency. He had a tremendous sense of sufficiency for the ministry. It just simply wasn't self-sufficiency or self-competence. It wasn't, it wasn't a confidence in anything that he had to offer in terms of his character or qualities or insights or wisdom. It didn't arise from him at all. It was only what he found in God. And if you have your Bibles, you can look in the next chapter, chapter 4, particularly in verse 5, where Paul therefore concludes, he says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as servants, your servants, for Jesus' sake. So we don't preach ourselves. We don't insert ourselves into the message. We're not a part of the message. We don't have the solutions I remove myself from the message. I remove everything that was from me. Get myself out of the message because I have nothing to offer. I have no adequacy. I have no sufficiency. I am spiritually impoverished. None of that, none of that is in my message. Again, this doesn't mean that Paul was not forceful. In his ministry, he was as formidable of a leader as you'll ever find. But that power and that ferocity did not arise out of a sense of self-value that Paul found in himself. He had deep convictions and he had a profound sense of responsibility and stewardship over those people and those churches that were entrusted to him. And he applied himself with this intense level of discipline and vigor to everything that he did, he wasn't what we would call a sort of withdrawing person. He had tremendous leadership, but none of it came from a sense of self-sufficiency, self-confidence. In fact, right there in verse 7 of chapter 4, he says he's nothing but a clay pot. 
just a bunch of dirt sort of packed together and baked. One of the most common, valueless, cheap items that anyone would have had in their house. We might put plants in them today, but they used them in the ancient world for all kinds of purposes, garbage receptacles. They used them to hold water. They were privy pots that you kept close to you in the night. They were used as wash pans for people's feet. They were unimpressive and expendable, and so if they got dinged or messed up or soiled or broken, it wasn't a big deal because you could easily go get another one. They were ultimately and extremely expendable. But, Paul says, inside this clay pot is a treasure of the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. These clay pots, which Paul, by, he, by that he means preachers, they have within them divine truth, which if you listen to, has tremendous power. But any work that happens through them, all the credit goes to God. Anything great, anything helpful, anything powerful doesn't come from me, Paul says. It doesn't come from my personal qualities. In fact, it comes from the same resource that is available to every person because it comes from God. Nothing unique to me. Paul reached a place where in his life he was convinced that he had nothing in and of himself. He was spiritually impoverished. He was spiritually bankrupt. And that's basically his defense. When his critics came against him and said, you know what, he is incompetent, he's inadequate, Paul's defense was basically to say, you know, you're right. You're absolutely right. I am weak. I am inadequate. I'm insufficient for the task. He doesn't argue with his detractors. He, in fact, silences them by basically agreeing with them, affirming. But one thing he will not concede is the inadequacy of the message that he conveys. He will not concede the inadequacy of God's power. He just removes himself from the whole equation. He just removes himself from the whole argument. He will not defend himself because he completely and totally surrenders to the accusation of spiritual poverty. And when Paul accepts that, when he uh, uh, sort of concedes all that, it removes all of this sort of jockeying. It removes all of these claims of advantage or superiority to others. He has no basis with which to compare himself to others, no claim of superiority in standing to them. He can't claim to look down on them or have any sort of thing which sets him up in terms of his personal traits and personal qualities as, as uh, advantageous, excelling above them. In fact, over in chapter 10, you can turn with me there. In chapter 10, you can read right there in verse 12, 2 Corinthians 10, 12. Paul says it, not that we dare 
to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. This is what people do when they don't sense their spiritual poverty. And when they haven't reached the place that Jesus is talking about, this is what they do. They stand back and they compare themselves to their colleagues, to their friends, to their neighbors. And they look at their neighbors and they see the problems that are there and they kind of reflect on the fact that, you know, they may not be perfect, but they're not that bad. They're not as bad as this person or that person, this acquaintance or that acquaintance. And so they're always measuring themselves, they're always comparing themselves, they're always elevating themselves in their own minds because of what they perceive to be as meager as it might be or may not be, they perceive that at least they have something in terms of spiritual resources. But Jesus is saying, if you have something, you have nothing. If you're still claiming anything, you don't have the kingdom. You are not going to enter. Paul says, I'm not willing to compare myself with others. I have no interest in doing that. I have nothing to prove to anybody that I'm any better than anyone else. In fact, Paul says, when you measure yourself by yourself or by others, when you boast beyond any right that you have to boast, when you take credit, when you have no reason to take credit, even these guys trying to take credit for Paul's own ministry, You just reveal the fact that your primary concern has nothing to do with divine approval, just the approval of other men. In the minds of these people in Corinth who were attacking Paul, they were treasures. They were all about establishing their capability. They were all about establishing their competency and establishing their value and their worthiness and their importance in comparison to others, and particularly by tearing down others. That's not the impoverished soul. That's not the attitude of the poor in spirit. They wouldn't dare do that, the poor in spirit, because they know how that would turn out. They know which end of the scale they would be on, the losing end, because they have nothing to put on the scale. They have nothing to offer. So the poor in spirit is not interested in comparing themselves. They have no interest in commending themselves. No interest in trying to to establish themselves. To offer their qualities, their insights to prove their value, they are completely destitute except for what they find in Christ. That's all they have. But Jesus says this is the entryway. This is the front door of how you enter my kingdom. And it's not until you reach that place that you will ever enter it. 
You won't come until you're empty of yourself. You won't inherit your kingdom. Excuse me, you won't inherit his kingdom until you give up your own. That's the poor in spirit. But they don't stay poor. They're empty of themselves, but they don't stay empty. Because Jesus fills them. And he gives them an inheritance beyond anything they could imagine. That's why they're blessed. Father, we're so thankful for this word and this reminder of what we're not so that we can be reminded of what we receive. We're so blessed, but not because of who we are. We're blessed because of you. We're so, so grateful that you took us out of the trash heap that you answered our cowering call when we had nothing to offer to you and you poured out on us your grace and mercy Lord we pray for any of those who are here who do not know you that you would do the same for them may they see their destitution may they find your rich fullness and grace That's our prayer, and it's for the sake of your name. Amen.